doing Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 31. (coughs) My throat is dry from singing. And for you guys that don't know, as we brought up before, or before I started talking in regards to um, prayers for individuals, one of the things that, that I want to make sure that we're in prayer for as well is I, I try to make a point every week to reach out to local pastors and stuff like that to, to see how they're doing, um, to see if they need prayer for anything, which of course they're very open and honest in saying that they do. Um, just be in prayer for, for local pastors. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of um, struggle going on right now with church attendance and people coming to church. Um, and they all have kind of relayed that common theme to me. I'm just wanting people to be intentional about being back together in a physical gathering. Um, you know, they, they, they're in prayer and they trust in the Lord and all that stuff. But I told them that I would definitely uh, tell my body to be in prayer for that um, as well. And to give you guys a little bit of recap too regarding Mike, if you don't mind me, Mike, I'm going to kind of just give a breakdown regarding the situation. I'd reached out to the men this last week and asking for prayer for Mike. Um, he was experiencing some chest pains a couple weeks ago. Um, had been admitted into the hospital, was told that it was stress. We did the beginnings for life 5K run. Um, Mike finished the race, but had some struggles. Um, wasn't feeling the greatest. Well, he ended up going back into the hospital, and they had found out that he had possibly had a mild heart attack. And you had two arteries that were 95% blocked, so you had to get two stints put in. So praise God that he's good and he's fine, because he could have very easily have suffered a massive heart attack and he wouldn't be sitting here with us today so we praise God for that so if you guys were unaware of what it was that took place I did want to fill you in but continue to pray for him and his healing okay so today though as I said you know I, I, I want to start to unpack the Psalms and you guys even might hear me reference back to them as well throughout this message but um, I, I always like to preach sermons of, of a reminder, maybe for some of us a revelation, as I feel like God's Word acts to do this for us. But this is a message regarding what it's like for us as Christians to bear and take up our cross for Christ. And, um, you know, this was a message for me that you know, I've, I've, I'm sure I've kind of hit on in the past before. I don't believe I've, I've preached out of this text before in the Bible but it was a good reminder for me. It was, it was, it was a convicting word for me as well. And me, you know, the, the Lord really quickening my heart and questions that I need to ask myself as a Christian. So as I stand up here and I preach to you, I'm not preaching to you as assuming that you don't do this. But standing up here as a fellow brother in the faith, fellow sinner saved by God's grace, they can struggle with this as well. Um, making sure that our, our sight and our focus is where it needs to be, and that is on Jesus Christ. So... In Mark chapter 8 here, we are seeing, and I'm going to start out here actually at verse 27, but I'm going to be preaching out of um, verse 31 through 38 in this chapter. Um, This situation where Peter has just declared or has just said to Jesus that he believes that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And we read throughout Jesus' earthly ministry up to this point that there really isn't a full understanding of the purpose of why he's there. Okay, they know him to be a good teacher. They, they see that he's performed these miracles and he's done all these things. But there still isn't a full comprehension of his title. What, it, what is he here for? So Peter, as we see, Jesus asks this question here in 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. 
on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? This is verse 28, chapter 8, book of Mark. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So there's still this sense of confusion, if you will, going on or, or guessing on who Jesus is. Verse 29 says, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So now we're going to go Mark chapter 8, verse 31. So we have this, this word that's been spoken. Peter has said, Jesus, I believe you to be the Messiah. He goes on. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, what I want you guys to look at here, beginning back in 31, is it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. There's three things that we see that have to go on. He must suffer, he must be rejected, and that he must be killed. This is not something that he's saying that this will happen sooner or later, that this is something that could happen. This is Jesus saying that this must take place. It has to happen. And we see further on here that Peter then takes him aside to be and begins to rebuke him. Why would Peter do such a thing? Why would he take Jesus, the one that he has just said is the Messiah, why would he set him aside or take him aside privately to rebuke him? We look and see that a lot of the teachers of the Old Testament, the Pharisees, and even the Jews of that day, they had this assumption and this belief of who the Messiah was. We've taught about it. I preached about it here in church that there's this assumption and based on what the Old Testament said, that he was a king, right? That he was a servant, right? That there, that there was maybe this impression that the Messiah would ride in on a horse with a flaming sword and destroy all of Rome for the Jews, there's this assumption of that. So as Peter just says that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, for Jesus himself to sit there and say that the Son of God must be rejected, he must suffer, and that he must be killed, you could see why Peter would struggle with such a truth. But the thing that's ironic about this is, is that we also read in the Old Testament such, such uh, books and chapters like Isaiah 53 that remind us and tell us actually that there is a sacrifice component, a suffering component that comes along with the one that's the chosen king that's called to come, the Messiah that's called to come to save Israel. But this truth and this mindset and this, this, this knowledge was set aside for some reason in their teachings. They just believed that the, that the Son of God, that the Messiah, the Savior of all Israel, would come, he would establish his throne, his, his kingdom, and all would be well. There would be no struggle, no suffer. So you can see, once again, why this turmoil would, would arise in Peter when Jesus would sit there and say, this person has to suffer. This person will be rejected. More so, this person must be killed. These are things that will happen to me. This didn't sit well with Peter. 
And we see that Peter rebuked Christ. You guys have to understand, too, what this word rebuke means. This isn't just Peter taking Jesus to the side and saying, Jesus, you know, you shouldn't really talk about that. It could upset people in them hearing this. This isn't how you question your 10th grade science teacher and something that he's teaching you. This is Peter ironically now calling to the side the person that he just declared to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He is rebuking him in a fashion and a way that they would do back then where it was almost like a demonic influence was coming over Christ. And he would go to Jesus and he would sit there and say, you're, you're speaking things that couldn't be of God because of what we know the Old Testament to teach, what we've been taught, that this Messiah, this Savior, would not endure or go through such things. So can you imagine the paradox here? He just declared Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God, only for Jesus to begin to teach right out the gate with this new knowledge and this new understanding of who he is, and right out the gate, what does Peter do? He rebukes the teaching. I don't like the way this sounds. This doesn't sound pleasant to me. So what does Jesus do in response? Remember what we just said, rebuking means Peter rebukes Jesus. So it says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, what did he do to Peter, church? He rebuked Peter. But then he goes on to say something which I've joked about here in church that sometimes we say to our kids when they're acting up. Get behind me, Satan. Why would Jesus say such a thing to Peter? He says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, Peter, but merely human concerns. We read and we have read that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. How many of us remember the story, right? If you're truly the Son of God, you can turn these stones into loaves of bread. If you're truly the Son of God, throw yourself from the cliff and the angel. If you're the Son of God, all I need you to do is just simply kneel in front of me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Right? Does Jesus fall to the temptations? He does not. But we see and read in the Gospel of Luke, and we can actually go there as a church real quick. I'm going to have you guys go to the next book up. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we will look here. At verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until what? An opportune time. Or some of your Bibles may say another season as well. When Jesus is speaking to Peter, he knows what's going on here. He knows that there is a real enemy, a real Satan, that is even trying to influence his own follower and trying to convince him that there can be a throne without sacrifice. That there can be a throne, a kingdom, without suffering. That there can be a throne and a kingdom without rejection. 
Peter himself, the rock, the one that Jesus declared, I'm going to rename you. The one that just said, you're the, you're the son of God. I see it now. And, and Jesus says, truly, you didn't learn this from man, but you learned this from God himself. He says, get behind me, Satan. He knows that this teaching and this understanding is still trying to be broadcasted even still. That, that the devil himself has seen another opportune time to come and try to convince Jesus that there's another way. That, that guess what? You don't need the cup of wrath. You don't need to endure that. But all you have to do is simply bow before me. And we see this, and Jesus wants to say, get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is a question that can be posed to us today as Christians. Where is our focus today? This is me taking the text now, wanting to apply it to the lives of you here today, and as I apply it to the life of myself. With all of that in context, the question is, is where is your mind? Where is your focus? This is the line that divides godlessness from godliness. That we so easily, when we focus on things that, that revolve around comfort, things that make us feel good, they're human concerns. But do we put our concerns in the things of God? And I can sit here and raise my hand and say that I too can struggle with that. Many of you, if not all of you, struggle with that. Lord knows in the times we live in today, as I, as I continue to play this over and over to you guys, every Sunday, we are bombarded with things that try to detract and detour us from our focus on things of God and putting that on things that are of human concern. Godlessness and godliness. Where are you at? What is your focus? There's an enemy that is trying to convince you, the Christian, the Son of God, the co-heir with Christ, that guess what? There's a kingdom without suffering. That there's a kingdom without sacrifice. That there is a kingdom without rejection. And this is for those who say that they are Christian. I can't speak this any more plain than what Jesus himself is speaking. As he just says, he's speaking to them plainly. There's no parables, right? There's no sitting there and trying to wrestle with, what does he really mean by this? Is he using hyperboles? Is he saying something? No. He's just saying it as plain as day. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, your concerns are things of human and not that of God. He goes on to say in verse 34, he calls the crowd to him along with his disciples. He doesn't just want the disciples to hear this. He wants the people that are there. Remember, he has gathered masses of people around him because of the things that he has done, the miracles that he has performed. People have heard about him. There is a group of people around him loving what's going on. Maybe if we go up and just simply touch him, he can heal us. Whatever it is, he has the group. He has the masses. He is now going to give a message to kind of wither out those who may be there for the wrong purposes. He says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves 
and take up their cross and follow me. Now, you guys got to remember, there was no mention yet up until this point of a cross. No one knew anything of a cross. The only thing right now that they know of is what Jesus had said. Yeah, Mark chapter 8. The only thing that they knew so far was that there was going to be rejection, that there was going to be suffering, and that there was going to be death. That's it. When you said cross to a Jew, they knew exactly what that meant. That form of, of capital punishment was horrific. They would basically have the, the vertical post already in the ground waiting. You were then given the horizontal post to put on your back and to carry to your death. It was a heavy post as well. Many times you were whipped in the process to make sure that you got up there. You had people standing along the line as well watching. This was a horrific way to die. So you could see as many, maybe when Jesus was preaching to the multitudes, maybe they were bored, maybe they were tired, maybe they were still wrestling with what he just said about the suffering, rejection, and the death part. But when he said, surely I tell you, whoever follows me must deny themselves and take up their cross, you could guarantee that many of their heads raised up to look. What is this word of the cross that he's taught? What is he? You mean the cross like what the Roman? There was a wrestling, I'm sure, that had to go on with this. It was a way for Jesus to hit home what it was like for the Christian to follow Jesus. This was an everyday thing. This was a day-to-day -day thing that Jesus calls for us to do. Once again, he says, starting off at 34, when he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That was the attention grabber. You're telling me I have to take up a cross. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I hear so many people wrestle with this stuff about the teachings of Christ and then the teachings of Paul, and they sit there sometimes and want to think that maybe they contradict each other. And I sit there and I go, no, Jesus gives a general overlay of things, and Paul really breaks down in detail what it means. We know when Jesus sits here and says that when you are a true disciple, a true follower of his, you know the life that you have, you must lose for the name of Christ which then means that you will find the true life. Paul says and reminds us that when we are baptized and when we become followers of Jesus Christ, that the old ways are gone and the new ways, the new life is here, that you are a brand new what? Creation. So these words and these phrases and these teachings work in harmony with one another. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of his, you have to lose what was old, to gain truly what is new. Plain and simple. That is the mark in the, in the life of a Christian. There is a, as he says, a suffering component that comes along with that. He goes on to say in verse 36, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is a question that you and I should always ask ourselves. What is my soul worth? What is my soul worth? 
Am I willing to give up that which is temporary for that which is eternal? Going back to what I said before, we have been bombarded with things that, of the world that tell us that we need these things. Are we not? The world is constantly showing you and I things that we apparently need to have to make us feel like we're worth something, like we've made it, if you will. Only to get these things for so long to move on to what? The next thing. See it with iPhones, right? Probably a dumb analogy, but people are smiling. Got to get the new one, right? But do you remember how you felt before the last one came out? You had to have that one. It's this rat race of life, and I've said it before, where guess what? The race and the course always changes, and in the end, the rat always dies. Are you just merely becoming good at running a rat race? Or do you see where true value lies? Especially as a Christian. Do you realize that you as a Christian who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ has the true pearl that's sitting in the middle of the field, the true value, the true gift, and that is eternal life. That is a relationship with the living and loving God. That you understand and know that by truly following Christ that there will be suffering, that people won't like you because of that. A question that I ask you guys is a question I asked myself last night and this morning when I'm reading this is how many people in your life know that you're a Christian? How many people know? How many people that you work with? How many people in your family? How many people that you are around on a consistent basis know that you're a Christian? And why do they know? How do they know? Do they know because you've simply said it? Or do you do what a lot of people have done in the world today, which I've heard many politicians say this when they're asked about their faith. I don't like to talk about such things because I feel like that's a private matter. How many of you have heard that before from people? I really just don't think it matters because that's really between God and myself. I think everyone's faith and their belief is just between them and God, if you are a Christian, that is a complete lie. You are called to go out and proclaim and to bear the name of Christ. You are called to in everything that you do. I don't care if you're a truck driver, if you are a home health worker, if you are whatever. You do it in the glory and the name of Christ. You bear the name in everything that you do. Why? Because this is the new life that you have. You've lost your old life, so you've truly found real life. And in doing that and living like that, guess what will happen? We read about it before when we were reading through 1 John. The world won't like you because of it. It won't. It can't. We read and saw when we're reading through that Cain destroyed his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifices were righteous and Cain's were not. The world sees us as such. How many of you that have become a Christian and have leaned into your faith more and more have just seemed like more people just don't like you? See, we're not alone in that. It just seems like more people don't like you. But it does seem like that there are those other relationships that seem to be a little bit more deeper. 
that your intent with people seems to be a little bit stronger. That you want to be more intentional with those that are around you that bear the name of Christ. So that is a question that I want you guys to go home with. How many people around me know that I am a Christian and why? If you were put in the courtroom and you were being convicted of being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to send you to prison? Ask yourself that question. They had a private investigator following you around your whole, you know, the last two months of your life, watching you. They were even under your bed when you were sleeping. Creepy stuff. Outside your bathroom, not inside when you're taking a shower, because that'd be even weirder. Listening to the phone calls that you make. They do. All these things are going on. And that private investigator was able to sit down as a witness against you to go, this is what I found out. Not that you just come here on Sundays and sit, but throughout the week. And when he read down through that evidence, would you be able to be convicted? Or would the judge sit there and just go, that's really not a lot of evidence. I mean, I know they say they're a Christian, but no. This is where we have to place ourselves and put ourselves as Christians day in and day out. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Once again, what is your soul worth? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So I go back to my previous question. How many of you or people that you know say that, you know what, my faith is just my business? That's just between me and God. Can you imagine when Jesus comes back and he's there to testify for you and God the Father asks the question, what about this one? And he looks at God the Father and says, well, this is just a personal arrangement between me and him, so we'll just keep that private. That won't cut it. He wants to be able to look at you and go, this one lived for you. He wasn't perfect. Guys, you're not perfect at this. You're not. No one is. Our daily lives, this is the the words of encouragement for you guys in closing. Our daily lives are examples of how imperfect we are at this. Amen or ouch, right? Like, Josh, you're telling me this truth, man, I fall short. You are right, you fall short. Every day, you fall short. Guess what that exposes? Your need for who? Him. And if you just stop and bask in the truth that you've fallen short, if that's where the line is drawn and you're done, you will never progress in your faith. You'll never grow. You'll never mature. Because all you're focused on is your inability as opposed to looking at your inability as a broadcast and a shining for his ability to continue to save you, to continue to grow you. That's what repentance is. You guys hear me say it. I'm going to give you a brief rundown of what this means. Pastor Josh, how do I know that I have true repentance? You say the word, what does it mean? It doesn't say ask for... Asking for forgiveness is a part of true repentance. I've given you guys this analogy before. We're sitting in this church right now. 
Some of you half asleep, still listening to me, so thank you for that. But we're pretty calm, comfortable, right? There's no fire, correct? As far as I know, there's no fire burning. What if all of a sudden the TV exploded and a flame started to just encompass, just encompass this front of the church? What would you guys do? Would you still be in the fashion and the way that you are looking at me? Would you? What would happen? You'd run, get kids. You'd yell, Pastor Josh, there's a fire back there. You would not be listening to me. Your actions would change. So I ask you guys, how do you know that you have a true heart of repentance? That when you hear this truth, when you hear stuff about that, that should make you feel convicted, that makes your butt squirm in the pews, that goes, man, I really fall short at that. But also when Pastor Josh says 1 John 1, 9, that says that he is faithful and just in forgiving those who ask for forgiveness and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, that I believe in that as well. There should be a fire that's going off in your heart and mind that leads to a change in action. If your heart is lamenting over hearing the word of God, that's a good thing. What do you think the Psalms are about? Who wrote the Psalms, Jelaine? Most of them. What did David do, church? He was an adulterer. Some believe, based on the scriptures, that he probably raped Bathsheba. He sent... Uriah out to die? You're telling me that that individual was labeled as what? A man after God's own heart. And you sit in the pews and think that your mess can't be dealt with? That this doesn't apply to your dirt? Every time he screwed up, his default was what? Lamenting. Crying out to God. Soul, why are you so downcast? Like he's speaking to himself, his inner self. I have the opportunity to give praise to the loving and living God. I'm going to take that opportunity every day. I'm going to bask in the truth that I have the Holy Spirit in me, my seal and proof of redemption that gives me the ability to feel convicted of the sin that I just slipped to. Because before, when I was of the world, I was operating in darkness. I was doing these things not knowing that they were really all that damaging to me. But now I'm aware of my sin. I can call out the enemy. Remember the Rocky analogy? Hit the one in the middle. I don't sit there anymore confused. This is your life as a Christian. You have that opportunity to do that. So if you sit here and you feel that conviction, guess what? You have a heart after God. You have a heart that's lamenting, a heart that's feeling repentance. In that moment, guess what you're called to do? Ask for forgiveness and what? Believe in Christ. We said it in our backyard, right? Confess, repent, believe, endure. Confess, repent, believe, endure. That is the mark of a Christian. Confess your sins, repent, believe in God. Don't believe in yourself. Remember, you've shown yourself throughout your life. I'm not one to be trusted. Every time I've kept it real and I've followed my heart like the world says, it just puts me in a situation that's worse than what it was beforehand. 
Don't believe in yourself. Don't follow your heart. Believe in God. Follow Christ. Period. And guess what? In the process of doing that, you have to endure. Why do you have to endure? Because the world won't like you. But guess what? All the much more reason to do what? Run to him. David in the Psalms, a lot of the writings are about his enemies coming upon him, chasing him down. He had a son that was not a very good son that if it was our son, we probably would put a hit out on him by the name of Absalom. When he wrote Psalm 42, the one that I talked to you guys about before the sermon, that was about Absalom coming after David and his servants. They're running for their lives. Deep calls to deep. Many of you right now are in some deep whatever. Doo-doo, there you go. You are drowning in despair today because you're stuck in yesterday or you're terrified about tomorrow. You have no idea what's going to come about from this week, this day, whatever. Anxiety is breaking over you like waves. You're drowning. Take that deep despair and call out to the deep mercies of God. Call out. Guess what? He's faithful. He's just. His word says that. Trust in his word. Trust in his character. He loves you. He loves David. A man that he's pegged. A man after my own heart. I'm here to tell you, church. He loves you as well. So, what does it look like to be a Christian? As Jesus himself said, the Son of Man must endure, be rejected, and killed. Guess what? You as a Christian, you yourself will endure. You yourself will be rejected. But there is a death to self that you must proclaim before you do this. There is a killing of yourself that you must do. The old life must be gone before you can step into the new life. Bless you. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just give you thanks for your word, Lord. Um, I give you thanks in regards to just personally, Lord, to, to, to bless you, to, to be able to have your word just pierce my heart and my mind, Lord, to remind me of what it means to be your follower, to remind me of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, Lord, and everything that I do living a life that gives you glory. Broadcasting your name to those around me because it's all about you. It's not about me being looked at in a certain way, but it's about people knowing you through me, Lord. Not living in the truth of being saved because I want to get to heaven, but living in the truth of being saved so I can go out and live like you so others may be saved, Lord Jesus. And I just pray that individuals in this room take that to heart when they leave, that they ask the questions. How many people around me know that I'm a Christian? And if I was put in the courtrooms, could I be convicted of bearing your name? And if they feel like that they have, and if that burns in their heart, Lord, I pray that they take that to you, that they take it as a sign of your spirit living inside of them. And just as a fire would burn in this church, that their actions would change, I, I, I pray for the same thing to take place as that fire is burning in their heart, that their life changes, that there's a turning away from that sin or from that laziness and a running towards you, and that they ask for your forgiveness and that they believe in your truth that you will forgive them. That is how we grow and that is how we mature as Christians. 
Lord, I pray for peace over the individuals in this room, even people listening. I pray for healing for those that are in need of it physically, Lord, in this room or people that are listening. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you guys very much.